This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. This is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And my guest today is the one and only Mr. John Joseph. John, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me, man. It's it's a real honor, you know. That the, the honor is all mine, sir. So what I like to do before we get rolling on these shows is just share your bio with the audience uh, in case anyone is not familiar with your work. Um, I'd be surprised if they're not, but just in case. I'd be surprised how much, how many people are not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so just in case, um, let, let me read this and then we're going to hop into a, a conversation I'm very much looking forward to. Uh, John Joseph truly has had an amazing journey through life. Being the son of an alcoholic welterweight prize fighter who battered his mother came with a price. That price was paid at the age of five when his father severely beat his mother for the last time. And he and his two brothers uh, were split up and put into orphanages. The year that followed for him or years that followed for him were no less horrific as he and his two brothers were bounced around in some of the worst homes in the New York State foster care system. In January of uh, 1977, at the age of 14, John hit the streets, alone at a time when New York was one of the most violent cities in the nation. He was shot, stabbed, and survived by being a heroin mule, angel dust dealer, and a slew of other scams taught him uh, by his taught to him by his teachers at the University of the Streets. After numerous criminal incidents, John was arrested and sent to New York City's infamous Spotford Juvenile Correctional Center in the Bronx and was subsequently moved upstate to serve 18 months of lockup. John formed the absolutely legendary, that's my addition, not his bio, but the legendary Cro-Mags in 1981 and has been touring ever since. He penned his memoir in 2007, The Evolution of a Cro-Magnon, a phenomenal book, um, as a way to exercise the demons that haunted him. The response has been overwhelming, as John's longtime friend, the late Adam Yauch, our MCA of the Beastie Boys, himself has said, a lot of people talk about coming from the streets. When John says it, the shit is real. As of late, John's memoir is in development for a feature film. His second book, Meat is for Pussies, A Comedic Guide to Real Health for Men, was picked up by Harper Collins for a Summer 24 release. John convinced thousands of people to give up meat and live healthier, spiritual lives, and he put his 33 years of experience in, 
in the vegan and, or I'm sorry, the vegetarian athletic field in every chapter. His third book, which we will be discussing today, The PMA Effects, comes out uh, first week of October, and that book will be a game changer as it helps people develop a mindset to overcome any difficulties in life. John still practices the Hare Krishna tenets daily, chanting, service to others, feeds the homeless, mentors at-risk youth and inmates. He's also competed in 10 Ironman triathlons. It seems for John Joseph, life truly has been an evolution. John, and, and the crazy thing is, man, that bio just barely skims the surface of your life. And there's so much packed in there, man. But wow. So again, thank you for taking the time to be with us. I am super psyched to share your work and your wisdom with the world. Thank you. Uh, it's uh, Yeah, it's been a long journey. You know, my mom uh, wrote me today because uh, can you hear me good? I hear you great, man. You sound awesome. Okay, my mom, you know, my mom text me today because she saw that the new book's coming and you know she just you know she gets a little overwhelmed because like we've been down this together as a family uh you know since before i was even born you know uh you know it didn't come to me till i was 40 that uh she had actually left my father. They didn't get divorced. They were still married, but he broke in and raped her. And, and uh, she decided not to terminate the pregnancy. And, and that that pregnancy was me. Wow. So, I mean, you know, my, my road that I've been pr- traveling started at conception, man. You know, mm. it, and, and it, she gets worked up, you know, when she sees the stuff that I'm doing. And especially... Uh, how it's all about paying it forward and, and, and helping people because people helped me. And that's, you know, my attitude is that of service. That's what I learned from my Guru Maharaj, uh, Srila Prabhupada. Mm. Uh, so that's what I try to put into practice every day. Yeah, and I love that about you, John. You are very much the real deal. I know bhakti and karma yoga are exceptionally important to you, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, Before we get into that, I was hoping, I know we talked about your childhood a bit in that bio, but again, I, I would like to explore that a little bit more just for the audience who is not familiar with your work. You have quite a story. I know it was uh, laid out in depth in your autobiography, The Evolution of a Cro-Magnon, but can you kind of give us a nutshell of that? Bring us back to that crazy shit you experienced as a kid. I mean, there was so much going on there. I mean, um, you know, we ended up with uh, initially, uh, you know, the last time my father, you know, my mother left him, and, and uh, he, you know, he would track her down and, and beat the crap out of her, and yeah. severely. Uh, you know, this guy's a prize fighter beating on a woman that's 110 pounds. Yeah. You know, and uh, so the, she took him to court to make him pay child support because she was, by the time she was 20, she had three kids from him. Yeah, and two of them not by choice. My younger brother, she was also raped, uh, you know, and that's her words. That's not mine. Yeah. A rape is when somebody, even if you're married to them, comes into your house and forces himself upon you. That's why, you know, I feel for these women that are going through all this stuff right now with, with, 
with these with these men, you know, that have done this shit for years and gotten away with it. And they need to pay for their crimes. And, uh, you know, finally, um, you know, he, he would break in and beat the crap out of her and, and take the money after he paid it through the court system. Uh, he would just break in and take the money back. Yeah. And uh, the cops wouldn't do anything to him. Uh, so f the last memory I have is, is um, you know, we were sleeping and he broke through the door. And, and I mean, we're terrified kids, man, you know. And, and uh, my mother was on sedatives and, and, and her whole life she just lived as fear from this man. And um, I just remember him beating her around the apartment and, and trying to stop him and... Uh, mm. Uh, to no avail, and uh, my, uh, you know, the landlady called the cops, is what I was told, and they came in, and, and uh, you know, I just remember pulling away uh, from the house, and it, it's a vivid memory of mine, uh, looking out the back window uh, of the police car, and, and, and the lights fading in the distance through the rain, and, and just like, and then, um, you know, it, we were like me and my younger brother for some reason my grandparents took in my older brother and I think they all told her not to have have me and my younger brother and I always had this feeling like the fucking family was against us because we were these rape children you know mm. and uh, it, it just kind of did something to me as a kid and, and, and um, so they took my older brother in and we got put in an orphanage and we spent, I don't know, like a year there. And um, and then uh, we we ended up with this family in Long Island and uh, just from hell. These, these people were just animals. And uh, finally, my grandparents had to they couldn't take care of. Uh, my brother anymore and they put him in a foster home too out in Dick's Hills and uh, that was during the Vietnam War it was 1969 or 1970 and that foster father was uh, only uh, fostering uh, young girls from Vietnam mm. and then it turned out he was raping them and uh, and they closed that you know there was some funky stuff going on with that and they, they they closed that house down and then moved him in with us but I mean these people were animals they would they would the father would beat us continuously uh, they, they wouldn't let us in the house we had to stay outside and, and rake dog shit and basically they fed us when they fed the dog and our meals were consisted of um just bread and tea, or if we got lucky, uh, she would take Oreos, and she didn't like the filling, so she would scrape it off in her teeth, spit it in a bowl, eat the wafer, and then spread the Oreo filling on green-molded bread and, and, and feed that to us. And, um, you know, we had to, like, start learning how to steal in stores and everything just to eat. They starved us, and they were getting, a, you know, money for us. Mm. Back then, they were getting, I don't know, three or $400 a month uh, from the Angel Guardian uh, home um, for each one of us. And they had six foster kids, so you do the math yeah. on And they used us, 
as slaves. Like we, we all had to bathe in the same water. We had to clean their house. Uh, they were so cheap. I mean, it's just the mentality of these people. They wouldn't even run a vacuum cleaner, so they bought, you know, four or five brand new toilet bowl brushes, and we had to like brush the carpets uh, with toilet bowl brushes, and and, and um, you know that, and the older seventeen, eighteen year old kids, you know, they were, they they uh, you know molested me and my brothers and, and put us in fear continuously and it was just hell yeah and, and um you know we uh we we uh we couldn't say nothing to my mother because she she one visit we started having visits after an, i don't know a year or two and we started saying some stuff to her and 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 she tried taking pills and committing suicide and slicing her wrists. And we had to call my uncle over and then we didn't get any home visits for a while. So then we were like, okay, we're not going to say anything. Let's just, we kept a diary of everything they did to us, everything they fed us. And, you know, the deep dark secret, we never wrote about, you know, what those other kids were doing to us because it, you know, that was like something we never talked about. And, uh, you know, to even till I wrote the evolution of a Cro Magnon, it was some, you know, just something I kind of didn't want to face, which I knew I had to. But um, yeah, so we just learned how to start stealing and hustling, and uh, you know, they pitted the kids against each other. Like whoever would rat on the other kid for doing something they would give that kid a box of cereal he got to pick the cereal and then eat it in front of all of us and, and just that you know they're just they were just animals man yeah. uh, for lack of a, like to do that shit to the kid to kids oh yeah and it, and it hit me and i wrote about it in, in in the pma effect i said you know it dawned on me that like now it's such a big social media world with pictures of every little thing documented and i'm like you know what we spent nearly seven years in that house and they never took one single picture of us yeah. and it's like we were like the ghost children that didn't exist all the kids in the neighborhood picked on us i mean we had to like carry our lunches to school in rotten wonder bread wonder bread bags and and, and then we found out where they started keeping the money um and we started stealing, stealing it back, and and eating, and and you know, um, we re when we realized that our mother wasn't taking us back, that's when we turned into diary and we got the hell out of there, and uh, they had the state closed the house down, and then we got you know bounced around to different foster homes, and uh, my younger brother ended up in a foster home in the five towns in Lawrence. Um, and, and me and uh, my older brother went to St. John's Home for Boys in Rockaway Beach. And that's when all the craziness really started because, you know, we were there April of 76 or whatever. And then the bicentennial and, and just like, you know, it, we were the only white kids in there. Yeah. Besides one half Spanish kid whose mother's boyfriend set him on fire, Jesus. Uh, you know, when he was a kid. Uh, so, and, you know, so then, uh, you know, things progress from there. Um, yeah. You know, can you, can you walk us through just a little, a little of that? Cause I, I mean, 
I first of all, thank you for your vulnerability and sharing this. Um, we have, I know a lot of young listeners and when people like yourself are willing to open up and be raw and authentic in this way, that really connects with them. And the bigger part, John, is that you went through this hell and hopefully you could share a little bit about the teenage experience. Cause I know it only got more insane there, but then here you are years later. And this is what we'll get to after you talk about teen years, you, you, you know, you, you find the bad brains and, and start Cro-Mags and PMA and your new book. I mean, you are in the world being of service, like leading by example, like, uh, like, um, MCA said, you know, you're really walking your talk and that's hugely, deeply inspiring for a lot, a lot of people. So, thank well, you. you know, it, it wasn't always that way because I, I was very secretive. It's taken, you know, and I'm still a work in progress. There's a lot of yeah. things and anger issues I still have. I've sure. never seen the people that did that shit to me as a kid. The, the older kids in the home that, you know, sexually abused me and my brothers. And I don't know what I'll do to them when I, if I ever see them, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it, it's, it's not like, oh, poof, the magic dragon. Yeah. And, and I took a magic pill and everything yes. was cured. You're looking at... You know, that was 76 and you're looking yeah. at, you know, 42 years later and I'm still I'm still dealing with it. But I know, uh, you know, coming off a of drug addiction and everything else, uh, you know, what the alternative is. And, and that's why I do the work on myself every day. But, you yeah. know, when we were in that uh, St. John's Home for Boys, we, you know, um, in Rockaway Beach, I started hanging out in Rockaway and. You know, Rockaway was a real happening town in the 70s. That's why the Ramones wrote the song Rockaway Beach. Yeah. Everybody hung out on 116th Street. They called it the circle. You would see punk rockers, Hells Angels, just all kinds of fucking people hanging out there. It was Rockaway was a real happening spot. And the more I started hanging out with the locals, I realized, like, you know, my time in the, in, in the boys' home, it, it, I just didn't even want to be there anymore. And, um, I remember like, I, 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 the first time I ever took LSD was with this guy, Bobby K and that got set on fire and he, he had, he had a bad trip and, and the acid was very powerful back then. Like it wasn't, uh, you know, you would actually hallucinate and see crazy, crazy yeah. stuff. Yeah. You know, it was still good acid, good LSD, blotter acid and my, and, uh, you know, window pane and all the, and very, very powerful hallucinogenics. And, uh, he had a bad trip and, and tried to murder me, uh, the first time, um, that I ever took LSD. Wow. And, um, you know, and then I went, I remember like I went to the Holland house and, uh, which was an abandoned hotel and crashed out. And I ended up having, uh, this having my skull split open with a pipe from one of the local dudes. And, I didn't rat, so that got me in good with them, and and uh, you know some crazy things went down on the fourth of July, seventy um, six. The uh, the locals were all Irish, so they didn't like the black kids. You know they they nicknamed Rockaway's nickname was the Irish Riviera. So like, you know you had all these people that had bungalows out there, and they got away from all the inner city stuff and then they were racist and, and, and beat up the kids all the time in the home. And, uh, and, and we being the only white dudes in that boys and that boys home had to suffer the repercussions of that. And, 
they threw Molotov cocktails on the 4th of July and uh, burned up these kids and I got jumped and it, it was just everything was pushing me to I didn't know where my life was heading but I'd given the state enough of my life to say like yo you had your chance and everything that you proved to me was that you didn't give a fuck that's the way I felt I said I went through your foster care system the the social worker would never even come to the house to check on it when he did he would tell the the those foster animals oh yeah I'm coming uh next month and, and then they would scare the shit out of us for a month and and uh you know when the when the social worker came we didn't we never said anything you know and um and then the and then St. John's Home for Boys and I was like you know, I, I had enough of dealing with what you're offering me. Um, I remember I split. It was uh, right right after New Year's, like January 77, I, I, I just left. And uh, I had come and gone a lot and racked up some, some drug sale cases and stuff like that. And then finally I just, I was like, yo, I'm gone, man. And... Uh, I just went out onto the streets and, uh, you know, being being a kid, I was 14 years old. I'm born in October, so, I mean, I'm still 14, you know, I, uh, and, and uh, I was trying to survive. And uh, the first night, it was like this blizzard hit, and I was under the boardwalk uh, sleeping with the winos and, you know, just a a everything, you know, it's like a puzzle, man. All the pieces were coming together. And, um, I, uh, I, I, I took up residency with these, these, uh, junkies that, uh, had a heroin business. So they gave me a place to stay, uh, in exchange for me being their heroin mule and, and carrying back heroin to, to Rockaway beach from, from alphabet city. And, uh, and then, you know, that went south because the one junkie robbed the other one and ratted on him and so I ended up involved in selling fake drugs at the garden and, and just fucking you know just insane insane stuff and yeah. meanwhile I'm going to like CBGB's and Max's and going to see Led Zeppelin and all them bands at the garden the who um Black Sabbath, like, and, and selling, selling drugs, selling fake drugs, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and finally, uh, you know, this girl, you know, she was older than me and, uh, started using heroin and, um, hooked up with the dude that I was selling with and, and she OD'd and died and, uh, that's when I just spun out of control and, uh, you know, it was like the fall of 78 and right before my 16th birthday and I started selling angel dust and one thing led to another and, uh, you know, I en ended up selling angel dust, uh, to some guy's sister who hurt her, she hurt herself and he came in blasting, uh, the dealers in the park with a 22 and I, I caught a bullet in the leg and you know I uh I got arrested after that 
and then uh, I had three drug cases, two drug cases, and a break in and entering. We we broke into like a supermarket drugstore uh, roof and got caught. Mm. And um, so then, like you know, St. John's wouldn't take me back, so they sent me to Spofford, and then I did three months there and twenty-one months upstate. It was actually eighteen months, and then right before I got out. Uh, I hurt somebody pretty bad that 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 broke my brother's nose and they they tacked three months in the linden which is like they called it the cells and it's it was solitary so they gave me three months there it added to my sentence and then I didn't have nothing to do nowhere to go nothing and they had to release me uh so my mother tried to take me in, but I didn't have any relationship with, with her, really. I mean, you know, I mean, I love her, what she's been through. I always had resentment. I felt she chose her boyfriend over us and left us in that home with all that shit going on. And um, she even admitted that later. She could never take back that she chose her boyfriend that didn't want us around over her children. But I'm like, you know, Ma, uh, you know, I always, back then I used to wonder why am I going through all this shit? What, what did I do? And, you know, so lost. I just remember being so lost in no direction and you're sitting in a jail cell. And, you know, I'm the only white, white kid in Spofford. Mm. Last kid that the cops told me got stabbed to death in Spofford and, I went in there fighting and being Mr. Tough Guy. and and But when you're in that jail cell at night and you're forced to face yourself, man, I cried every fucking night. Not because I was scared, but just because I just was kind of praying. That was my way of like, how do I get out of this? Mm. You know, there was, you just don't know. You don't have the answers, but you know there's something out there. Yeah. And, um... You know, I got out, and then I caught another drug case. And my mother had been dating a different guy at the time, like a Navy recruiter she knew or dated him before, whatever their relationship was, I don't know. But he was able to scratch my record away and and, and get me to sign into the Navy. And, uh, you know, I, I was fired up in the beginning, went to boot camp, wanted to do all this stuff passed the physical to get into buds for seals and got hurt Mm. in preconditioning. And, um, you know, uh, I was, uh, then I just went out and they sent me down to Norfolk and, uh, I just started smuggling drugs on the ship and, and selling drugs. I was selling acid and cocaine and pills and, and marijuana and just doing whatever the fuck I wanted. I just didn't have any respect for myself. I didn't have any respect for the uniform. Just uh, very, very lost, you know. And, and, you know, I was always still into punk rock. And then there was a club down there called the Taj Mahal. And the first bands that came down there were the Teen Idols and the Untouchables, which was Ian MacKay from Fugazi and then the... DC Posse came with uh, Henry Rollins and all of them. So, right. And then the next band that came was the Bad Brains, and that was the 
change of, of everything right there, you know, like HR talking to me about PMA. I, I just, the song Attitude stuck out. Yeah. You know, John, I actually wanted to share a really brief excerpt. I think this is perfect um, from your book and then uh, have you kind of keep going. If you don't mind, I would love to read no, this. Yeah, go ahead, bro. Yeah, so out of the PMA effect, you wrote, I feel the basis of all my work on self-improvement began with having a positive mental attitude. Although it's been a long, hard battle, I wouldn't trade the struggle for anything in the world. Matter of fact, I still fight every day to stay positive because I am fully aware that the alternative is a dark, deep, I'm sorry, a deep, dark shithole that I never want to visit again. So, you know, I, I love that. And and so you were saying, though, I, I was going to ask four listeners, if you can talk about meeting HR attitude, the, the effect bad brains had on you and what PMA is for those not familiar. Well, um, PMA stands for positive mental attitude and uh, Napoleon Hill. Yep. Uh, the author um, penned a bunch of books about mindset and, and, and having a positive attitude in life and. So HR kind of copped that from from him, but HR was this like savant sadhu, like incredible athlete, incredible musician, uh, just like you know. The first time I saw them, it just blew me away. I was like, I gotta know what these guys are about. Yeah, like I saw the Ramones in the '70s and, and 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 the Dead Boys and and you know all of this other punk rock stuff, but this was different. Yeah, this had a spiritual energy to it, man. They had just started getting into Rastafari mm-hmm. and talking about Ja and the backstage and just you know, funny thing was I sold their manager acid that night and I was <laughs> hanging out with them in the van in the parking lot and. Just craziness, you know, like, but HR was this like sadhu type person and they were surrounded by like very spiritual people. Their sound man, J.W. who did the first record, the raw cassette was into raw foods. And uh, one of the guys, uh, Ray Chinna was down with the whole Bob Marley posse. He's the one that got them to become Rastafari and go Ital and give up the meat and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and like they just were surrounded by just amazing, amazing people. Uh, but, you know, when I met them in Norfolk, it was like that seed was being planted. You know, it was like. Like, I took it all in, but I still went and did my bullshit. I still went and did my quaaludes and drinking and still sold drugs and still, you know, but it was like that seed was laying dormant, and that's what spirituality is. Prabhupada yeah. said it, it, it in Sanskrit, it's the creeper. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you you have the creeper, the seed gets planted, and then you water it and and, and, and give it nutrition through your sadhana program, through your meditation, your daily practices. But until you start doing that, it just sits dormant. Right. And I remember, like, I used to go up to D.C. on the weekends and, and go to all the shows, and I would see the Hare Krishnas dancing around. And I would dance with them, making fun of them, because we were these wild-looking, hardcore punk rock dudes, you know, with, like, spiked hair and chains and combat mm. with, like, bandanas and bob wire on. But, like, I will never... I was always respectful, and they, you know, they would just... 
you know, as a matter of fact, some like redneck, like, I, I don't know, I think it was rednecks or Marines or something, like tried to fuck with the Hare Krishnas. Like they were like talking that born again, Christian dogmatic stuff yeah. and giving them a hard time. And I'm like, yo, back up, man. They're not bothering you. Get the fuck out of here. Like, right. you know, like. Yeah, I kind of stood up for them, not knowing that that was actually service. Yeah, right. Because who knows what those guys would have done to those devotees, but I made sure they looked at me like, yo, this fucking, you know, these wild dudes are standing up for them. Like, what, what you know, they definitely backed down, but, um, you know, I, I ended up uh, catching a drug case I sold to undercovers in Norfolk. And then while I was, that was a civilian case and I got restricted to the ship because of it. So when the ship went underway, I was, I was basically a prisoner on the ship. I couldn't leave or nothing. And this one redneck kept fucking with me. And, and, and I just, I just snapped one day because that was always, I always had anger issues you know, mm. and I still do to a certain degree, I, you know, but it's way controlled yeah. uh, because I, I wake up and I do the work every day. But uh, I just lost it on him. He, he fucked with me the whole time at, at this command, the USS Arkansas. And uh, we were underway and I just I had enough, man. I just he was a boatswain mate like I was. So I walked into the paint locker and he was mixing paint and I just locked the door and then I picked up a full paint can and just started beating him with it. Mm. Like, you know, not in the head or nothing to kill him, but, you know, in the soft tissue, like, and, and he got hurt really bad, you know, and, yeah. and ended up in, in like, I, I guess, whatever, something, internal bleeding, intensive care. And then they locked me down on the ship completely and I had gotten oral surgery on a, some they pulled wisdom teeth and it got infected and they had to medevac me off the ship and then back to Puerto Rico and that was you know you start I, one thing I, I have been able to do is to look back and see how all the pieces like there was somebody laying out the crumbs for me to follow, you know, kind of like, mm. you know what I'm saying? Oh, like yeah. a trail of crumbs, yep. you know? And, and so that was before computers and all of this stuff. So they forgot to send me with my orders saying, Hey, this guy's supposed to be handcuffed to the hospital bed. And then they let me go and gave me my ID. <laughs> and then they sent me back to Norfolk and then, like, I was a month and a month there, and then they said, uh, "Hey, you know, your ship's about to pull in. <laughs> you know, sure, your ship's pulling in." And the guy was my friend, and he was like, "Wink, wink!" Like, the master at arms had called up uh, the command. Nimitz Hall was where I was, telling him, "Like, yo, lock this guy down. We're coming to get him." Yeah. So as I'm rolling out the gate with, like, my only few possessions, which was punk rock clothes and a few dollars, 
the bus stopped right at the at the <laughs> light before I got out of the base. And Nimitz Hall is at the front of Ham like Hampton Boulevard goes into the base, so the so the civilian bus goes into the base, goes all the way to the end, and then turns around and comes out. And I was going out, and they were crossing the red light to go to Nimitz Hall to get me the two master at arms, which are like the cops from your ship. Mm. And I just shrunk that, shrunk, like slumped down in the seat so they didn't see me. And they, the bus just pulled out the gate, and that was it, man. I, <laughs> and uh, stayed in Norfolk for a while, couch surfing for like, I don't know, a week or two. And then I went up to D.C., and Henry Rollins let me stay at his house. And then after eating all his food and while he was going to work, he was like, all right, enough of that. You got to get the fuck out. But, yeah. you know, a nice way, man. Right. Hey, man, like, you know, you can't move in here. I just let you crash. <laughs> fucking come home every day. My food's gone. And so this band called The Undead was playing at the 930 Club and, and they were from New York. Bobby Steele was in the original Misfits, the guitar player. Yeah, I just saw him a few weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. So then he said, "Hey, you know," I said, "Hey, man, can I catch a ride up to New York? I'm from New York. I need, I need to get back to the New York." And HR had told me, man, he goes, "Jock gonna make arrangement for us to see each other again, man. Trust me." So then, after I got out of the van, no money. Now I have a federal warrant because I'm, uh, I'm AWOL. Mm. No direction, no nothing. But I knew again, like when I went onto the streets in the 70s, that this was my path. These, wherever the universe was good, wherever this trail of breadcrumbs leads, man, I'm going down it. I don't know, you know, what's going to happen. But I got out the van, and, and, and who's standing in the doorway of 171A? HR. Mm. from the bad brains and i was like holy shit and he was just like rastafari <laughs> and and you know they let me move in and and that's when all the real spiritual stuff started the their sound man gave me the be here now book and yeah. i started reading ram das krishnamurti all the philosophers and the bad brains got me a job at this health food store smartly knowing that you know i'd be hooking them up with free food because <laughs> The guy used, you know, uh, Vinny Signorelli, who's like my 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 uh, shiksha guru, which means like the person who directs you towards your spiritual path, mm. worked at the health food store, and he played in the Dots, which was a famous punk rock band, yep. and the Dots, Jimmy Quid and the Dots produced the first Bad Brains record, pay to come and stay close to me, so there was that connection. So every time the Bad Brains would go to the health food store, they had a juice and sandwich bar, and Vinny would hook them up with hummus sandwiches. Everything was organic and and soup and juice and all kinds of stuff. So then Vinny goes, hey, you know, we need somebody. You want to work here? And I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> so then the owner, it was funny because they were involved with uh, Integral Yoga, mm -hmm. uh, Swami Sachinananda. So the owner says, uh, hey, you know, yeah, uh, so we're going to start you out karma yoga and see how you work out. And, and, and then, you know, we'll talk about salary down the road. So then like the first two or three days, 
Everybody in the neighborhood that was a punk rock, including the Bad Brains, knew that I worked there, and they were all coming over and, like, loading up free food and groceries. And this guy, Boshkar, Bruce, the owner, is looking at me, and he's like, seeing, you know, by the end of the second day, he goes, excuse me, I, I've noticed for the last two days you've been giving out food. Did anybody pay for that? And I was like, uh -oh. ah, man, that's that karma yoga you were talking about. <laughs> He's like, you're on salary as of tomorrow. No more free food. Oh, and I still gave out the free food. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, then, you know, started rehearsing uh, with the Crow Mags. We, we started the band. Uh, myself, Harley, the Bad Brains manager, and this guitar player, Dave Stein, rehearsed for, I don't know, five or six months. It didn't work out. And I went on tour with the Bad Brains and started another band, Blood Clot, yep. with the, and then you know, kept reading Prabhupada's books and philosophy, and then going to the Hare Krishna Temple in uh, Manhattan. Uh, I just said, you know what, man, it's it's, I want to give this monk thing a shot, mm -hmm. you know, and and and, uh, and and get into this wholeheartedly. So I was uh, I was a brahmachari in Hawaii for a year, and then uh, a brahmachari uh, celibate monk in, in New York for a year, and and but I, I always felt the calling to come back to the music, like you know, like th that 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 trail of breadcrumbs, man. I kept yeah. running into people from the scene, and when I was in Hawaii, I, this guy was there with his girlfriend wearing bad brain shirts. They're like, we just saw the bad brains in, in California. That was that 82 tour. And I was like, wow. Mm. Like, you know, I knew that I wasn't cut out to be a monk. It was great to have the two years of getting up at two o'clock in the morning, every mm. single morning in bed by eight being regulated. I was practicing martial arts. I was going out distributing books, yeah. uh, chanting in the streets. And, you know, that's the crazy thing was like, there I was making fun of those Hare Krishnas yeah. in 1980, and two years later, I'm one of the same dudes on the street, like, yeah. doing the same thing, you know? <laughs> like, you know, it takes a while to, 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 to reflect upon all that, but that's... And just, you know, reading the books and, and chanting and really taking it serious, and I uh, just felt, I felt the call in to come back to the music, and um, that's what I ended up doing, and... Uh, the Cro-Mags uh, reformed uh, with the Age of Quarrel lineup uh, yeah. in 84, the end of 83, 84, really. And uh, it was um, Harley, me, and Mackie Jason, and and, uh, and Kevin Paris. And mm -hmm. then we did, right before we did the record, we got Doug Holland to, to play. And, you know, went all over the world touring. I was AWOL still. Yeah. <laughs> You know, just craziness, man. Like, and you know, uh, anyone who was in my situation would be in anxiety. Oh man, I have federal warrants. I got, you know, the cops were coming to my mom's house periodically. I just had no anxiety because I was on this spiritual path, you know. Right. And, and then, as the band got really huge and we're touring with Motorhead, and we go to Europe, and then you know, one of my own band members you know, snakes me over and steals all the money. Harley steals all the money at the end of the tour. But it wasn't that it was just like a band member. He was supposed to be like my really good friend. And, and then I just, 
quit the band and 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 went downhill from there within that was uh the begin the end of 87 and, and 88 i just i had a two-year crack of the crack free base pills mm. robbing drug dealers just complete insanity I, I just did a 180 back to my old life because I had nothing. Music was everything for me, even in the foster homes. That's what got me through all the craziness was music. Music's always been the center of my life. That's what I loved about the Hare Krishnas. It was it was sound vibration. It was the most it's Shravanam, Kirtanam, Vishnu, Smaranam. It's hearing is the first thing of spiritual life. You hear yeah. the sound vibration of the mantra. You hear from the guru. So it was always a big part. And music was always a big part. And music was what kept me out of trouble and all of that. And then, you know, when I didn't have that anymore, I just hung out with the wrong people and uh, spun into a world crazier than anything I had seen prior, even on the streets of New York. I mean, and I, I, I saw people in the 70s get murdered in front of me, but this this was next-level insanity because I had people trying to kill me, you know, for robbing drug dealers. And one house we were in in, in Miami, the guy's brother had stolen kilos from the cocaine cowboys, the Cubans. And Jesus. He didn't tell us, but that was the first time I ever freebased. Mm. And he was making rocks the size of like ping pong balls and i'm like it was the biggest bags of cocaine i'd ever seen but he didn't say where he got it and then he's like you know he splits and says oh yeah you can stay in my you know the guy crazy dave says oh yeah you can stay in my brother's room and then the next night I couldn't go to sleep. I was still high, you know, smoking coke and doing whatever. And uh, this car pulls up, the doors open. And I remember I was trying to go to sleep and the sun, it was still dark, but the sun was starting to come up and I was tossing and turning and the guy had a water bed in his room. And it was just crazy. Like, you know, I remember feeling something was not right. And then these guys get out, and you hear two bolts of AR-15s lock and load, and they emptied both clips. They did a walk around the entire house, firing first of all into the room where I was sleeping, because that was that was Eddie's room, mm -hmm. and and the waterbed exploded, and the glass, and just like they just walked around that house, emptying, you know those clips, however many of fucking AR-15 holds, they just emptied both guns. Mm. And it just got crazier from there. And just insanity. And I remember, like, I lost control completely. I mean, everything I knew just went out the window. And the crazy thing was I still maintained a plant-based diet. Mm. Like I would, I never went back to eating meat because the one thing that I always knew that Prabhupada said, you can come back to spiritual life from anything. Once you start eating meat, your spiritual life is over in this lifetime. Right. And that's, and that stuck with me. And I never had the desire to eat meat, mm. even as a crackhead. I would do crack 
I'd be up on crack for three days and then go fucking get like 10 ounces of wheatgrass juice. And, you know, just crazy, crazy shit. And, and, you know, and I just kept robbing people in in New York. The drug dealers put KOSs on me, kill on sight. So I had to get the fuck out of here. We robbed this Colombian dude and threw him out of the car at like 50 miles an hour. And I knew that was going to come back to us. They were fucking looking for us to all the drug deals in Alphabet City were fucking looking for me. I was like just walking up, punching people in the face and just taking their crack, their big bags of crack. And and then I just split to California. And then at first I was trying to remain sober, but that didn't work. And then uh, I just ended up just robbing people, you know, with this girl I was with at the time. Her family was multimillionaires. And, um, you know, I was on the run, man. They had feds looking Mm. for us. Their father, her, her stepfather did the inaugural ceremony for Ronald Reagan. That's that's how powerful these people was. He's a huge Hollywood producer, dude. And wow. um, Yeah, and they were after us, and I didn't even know how bad until we tried to sell her car in a, to her friend in Palm Springs. And uh, he comes back out after, he's like, well, I got to check the VIN number, and comes back like, you guys need to get out of here. The cops are on their way because... When you run the VIN number of a stolen vehicle, the cops get alerted. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "It's rep- the car's reported stolen and that you kidnapped her. And I'm like, what? Wow. <laughs> so then, like, yeah, it was just craziness. I write about it in my book, The Evolution of a Cro-Magnon. Yeah. And, uh, we sold, like, her car uh, for plane tickets, money, and two ounces of cocaine. And, you know, she, she uh, her next-door neighbor was the Post's. They, she lived, yeah, post-serial. Yeah. So she lived on Pacific Coast Highway in Santa Monica, you know what I'm saying? Like at a fucking mansion. And yeah. That's her parents. And, and her father was a big businessman in New York, multi-millionaire. So they were looking for us everywhere. And uh, she told her friend that, like, we were getting on this flight to come back to New York. And then she told me that, in mid-flight, like, yeah, I, I told, what do you call it, uh, the next-door neighbor, like, you know, that was her friend that she's, she was on this flight to New York and going to go into rehab. And I was like, yo, the fucking feds are going to be waiting for us. The cops are going to be waiting for us when we land. Mm. So, you know, I had one ounce checked into the luggage and one ounce checked in the overhead and... Instead of like, you know, this is it, you know, we're going to be separated, all this, you know, that wasn't even my thought. My first thought was, and what I said to us, we got to sniff all that coke in the overhead. (laughs) I swear to God, man, it was the most crazy shit. I was going to the bathroom sniffing up like, you know, three gram lines, like fucking coke all over my face and sweating and standing up reading from the bottom of Tom, like yeah. you're going to hell for eating meat and yelling and like the passengers were flipping the fuck out you know and and this was you know way back 80 89 yeah 
So there was no like 9-11 shit or not right. like, you know. <laughs> so they were like, if you don't sit down, then you're freaking everyone out. We're going to have to call the police. Yeah. I was like, the police are already going to be there. Just tell them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and the thing was, I made her walk off the plane in front of me. And as soon as she got from that tunnel that connects the plane to the terminal, it, I remember clearly it was like raining and all these feds just fucking just swarmed on her, man, in overcoats, like wet overcoats. Wow, yeah. And they're like in the walkie-talkies, we got her, we got her, where is he, where is he? And I had merged in this between this family and went down the escalator to get out. But the thing was, and this is how I got away. Never in a million years did they think this fucking Mama Luke's going to go get his luggage, but I had an ounce of cocaine in the <laughs> in the checked-in luggage. I was I went to get the bag. Of course. Fucking A. So they ran outside where all the cars were parked and the cabs looking for me. But I was hiding behind a post, like I had this heavy metal kid fucking go get my bag. And then when I went out, they had, it was like some fucking Abbott and Costello shit. <laughs> I went out, they went out, I was getting the bag, I went out, they went in. And then right when I was getting in the cab, got in the back door as I'm closing the door, I hear, I hear there he is. Yeah. And these fucking guys are running from the other end toward me. And, you know, it's like 80 fucking cabs pulling out at the same time. So I got away. <laughs> and I told on the plane, I was like, call me at the Alcatraz if we get separated because I know we're going to. So I'm sitting in the Alcatraz bar doing coke. And the phone rings and he's like, John, it's for you. And I was like, what's up? Where are you? And I hear this man's voice. He's like, you're very good, John. <laughs> I was like, who is this? He's like, I was like, this is Kate's father. And uh, he's like, we had FBI. We had people all over the West Coast looking for you. But I was staying at punk rock houses and shit. I stayed with the, you know, I'm, well, I'm not proud of that. But the Red Hot Chili Peppers uh, people... The merch person let me stay at her house and she sold crystal meth and, and we mm. robbed her. That was one of the victims out there, but uh, mm. they, they couldn't find us because we, we were in the underground, you know? Yeah. And I wouldn't let her contact any of her friends. Yeah. Um, and then, and, and I'm going to tell you, this is leading up to how when they say you and i write about this in the pma effect they say when you hit rock bottom you know that's it but you can i i said you can go lower than rock bottom i, and that's, I agreed that's, yeah that's where i was at and uh you know he goes well here's the deal you stay away from our family you stay away from her if you ever even try to contact her again we're going to have you put in federal prison. We know all about your military, everything. Otherwise, this all goes away. Stay away and it goes away. Mm. And I was like, but I love her, man. <laughs> Click. Yep. So I went to this like crack house with all the coke. I didn't even have no place to live. I had no friends. I burned everybody. 
And these guys fucking robbed me, hit me in the fucking head and took all my coke and money. And I just was sitting in Tompkins Square Park in the pouring rain, no friends, no money, no nothing. I lost everything. And then I was like, you know, the next day I went to the Sunday feast, the Krishna temple. Mm. And I just broke down in the front of the deities in the temple. I lost my shit. And one of the devotees that was a friend of mine, he's like, he knew he was hearing all the craziness of what I, what I was doing. It was, it got around, you know, everybody knew. And I went to him and he was the temple, um, you know, he, he trained the new devotees. I said, if you don't let me stay here, I'm going to be dead. I'm going to die. Mm. And he, he said, all right, you can stay, but you have to have a job and, and you have to give a little donation to the temple. And that's what I did. And I got, I got a bike messenger. I tried being a stockbroker. That didn't work out. That was pure comedy. <laughs> they wanted me to get a suit. I showed up in a fucking wedding tuxedo. Every- <laughs> All the guys wearing Armani suits on Wall Street were laughing at me. Oh, man. So I got a bike messenger job and then started training and and clawed my fucking way out of that, man. Yeah. You know, day after day, just putting in the work. I went back studying martial arts. I started training hard. And, uh, you know, I haven't touched those drugs since 1990, man. Mm. That's whatever. I don't know. Do the math on yeah, almost thirty years. That's incredible, man. Yeah. So, uh, and, and and you know, like I said, man, there's no easy fix, man. You got to roll up your sleeves and do the work. But that's that's what led me to this and taking up Iron Man and all the rest of it, and then realizing, like, you know, you can stay in service and, and, and keep yourself out of trouble. I opened up a yoga center, uh, maintained it, financed it for 10 years, a Hare Krishna yoga center on St. Mark's, and we fed the homeless, and it's just, you know, it was part of my service, and uh, had a place to go for Sunday feast, and, and to see the deities, and association is, is the key, so I got to associate with all the devotees, but, you know, that's, you know, that's kind of the whole, you know, I mean, there's a lot of other little shit that happened between all that, but... I, I appreciate you sharing all that. I, I think it gives our audience a very in-depth look at both you as a person and then uh, what's going on with this forthcoming book, The PMA Effect. I love, John, you know, I, I want to ask you to give an overview of that. But one thing I wanted to say was I really appreciate how you're talking about seeds being planted. Um, I've written about that as well. And I'm in, you know, I was an addict as well. And I'm in recovery myself from all sorts of shit. I'm very lucky to be alive but i remember the weird thing for me is back for me it was a little later new but i'm you know i'm going to shows in in like 90 91 whatever and i'm seeing shelter and 108 and prima and i'm not into hinduism or any spirituality i'm a hardcore atheist at that point and here i am now you know several years later and constantly reading the Vedas and the Upanishads and reading uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj and Ramana Maharshi and all this shit. Like, this is what means everything to me now. And it's thanks to those punk rock roots that were planted, even though they did, it took a long time for them to come to fruition, they were being planted. And so I do a lot of work with young people and I try to remind them, like, as you've said, 
It doesn't happen overnight. It takes a lot of hard work, but if you show up and do it, it is doable. Anyone can do it. So, you know, again, thank you for sharing as much as you did about your story and, and, and being vulnerable with that. And so all, with those seeds being planted and here we are today, PMA effect is coming out next week. Um, can you give the audience a, uh, an overview of the book, like what you discuss, what the, what you hope to convey across and what you hope readers will walk away with anything along those lines would be great. Right. Um, well, the book, um, is, uh, is, is broken down into, uh, you know, four parts. Yeah. And one thing I talk, I, I, one thing I always talk a lot about is, uh, you know, is the, is the enemy mind. Yes. And, 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 um, it says that in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, that the mind could be the best friend or the worst enemy. Mm. And when we find that we've led a destructive path, uh, Really, that's because uh, we gave into the enemy mind, and the enemy mind can drag you uh, to the worst places in life. And I know uh, firsthand of that, and I know a lot of people. Uh, and I and I wrote the analogy. I, 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 you know, what's the nature of the mind? That's the first thing we have to understand. Is the nature of the mind is thinking, feeling, and willing. Yeah. You, you, you know, a thought can enter your mind, and, and then if you if you let that seed, just like the seeds of um, of spirituality can 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 uh, can progress, the seeds of negativity can also progress. Yeah. And that happens through the process, uh, which the nature of the mind, as I said, is thinking, feeling, and willing. So. First, you think about it, and it could be a negative thought, and then you feel like you want to do it, and then you're willing to do it, and you actually t take the action. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and, and like I said, I'm 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 a work in progress because I remember hearing like uh, it was like a couple months ago, and my somebody was like, "Yeah, that dude, you know, he's got like fucking kilos of cocaine and like." The whole mind thing, the mindset is 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 insane because like this like seed popped up and it was like, yeah, if you rob that guy, you could smoke fucking golf ball size, mm. you know, fucking uh, free base rocks for the next month. Yeah. And but I immediately was able to fucking have the intellect the intelligence kick in and be like all right that's that's just crazy but anyway i broke the book down into um uh, into four parts because Prabhupada said constantly that you know the the he used the analogy of of you know there's there's four limbs to the body yeah and, and each one serves the body as a whole and a severed limb is of no use to the body so i kind of you know took that and ran with it and, and then broke the book down into four parts mm. and um you know and rich roll wrote the forward and um you know so that's one of the things i say is you know every journey like part one has a has a, has a starting point so let's get you know roll we have to put a strong foundation in in place and build from the ground up right so 
you know, the thing that people need to realize, and one of the things that I try to stress in this book is that positive attitudes, like I said in, in the first chapter, they're forged in fire. And, and, and what that means is that out of all of that negativity, I really feel people get that are supposed to do good things get put under the hardest tests sometimes, mm. you know, yeah. because, and I said that in the evolution of a Cro-Magnon, I was like, I actually thanked my scumbag father for everything that I had to go through because that kind of made me the person that I am today yeah. with those challenges and those, you know, the adversity on that path, I would have lived a normal life. Right. Who, who knows what, probably not normal, but, um, definitely not the path that I, I was on now. Like, and, 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 you know, when I was in the jail cells and, and, and all the foster homes and all the streets and sleeping on park benches and stairways and sleeping in porno theaters and sleeping on fu in the fucking subways and getting robbed, I'm like, why am I having to go through this? You know, I don't ask those questions anymore. Mm. But part of the whole practice, and, and this is, you know, there you have to have a daily practice. That's yeah. what it all comes down to and that's the next thing that I talk about because the opening of the book is setting the foundation yeah so what's referred to as and and I'll just read to you this this part despite how much work I've done on myself or what I've been able to overcome and achieve if I don't have a positive foundation in place through all daily sadhana meditation spiritual practice my mind can and will lead me to negative places in this material world Sadhana is your coat of armor against bad vibes. Yeah. And that's the truth. That's what, you know, Prabhupada constantly stressed that, that every day you got to get up, you got to do your meditations, you got to chant, you got to read, you got to, you got to beat the mind with a stick on a daily basis. You know, it's like, yeah. it's like an unbridled fucking beast. Mm -hmm. You don't do that. Eh. It, it, and I really know that, you know, to be to, to be a factor because of, of, of the things I've had to go through when I didn't practice my sadhana. And the key to developing a, a sadhana is consistency. Mm. Consistency, showing up every day. That's how you get good at martial arts. That's how you get good at swimming, running, writing, uh and, and keeping and keeping a positive mental attitude, mindset. Yeah. There's so many people that are discussing mindset now yeah. because of how important it is. But it's about showing up every day ready to do battle. And, and that's what this book, it gives you the ammunition to do battle. And it's like I, I said, I, I'm not no fucking rocket scientist. I didn't come up with this. I said, you know, I just took the lessons I've learned in the last 40 years or whatever. And, and you know, like the mailman, I'm, I'm just delivering it. You know, I, I mean, I have my own vernacular. I had a lot of motherfuckers and whatever. <laughs> but that's just that's just, you know, that's that's uh, that's what I do. But it's all about, you know, 
I've lost a lot of friends over the years, man. Before I did my first, I don't, I think it was the first Kona race I I, I did. Uh, I raced for Alexander Owens, a little kid that's suffering from cancer. I raised a hundred thousand dollars for him in two races, and then like. I think it was the first year I did Kona. Actually, yeah, it was, 2016. And my friend, you know, relapsed into drugs and, and fell down the subway stairs and hit his head, went into a coma. And I got to see him right before he died. And I played Prabhupada chanting and put Tulsi on him and, and, and Tulsi beads and, 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 and T-Lock, the sacred clay. And, and he passed away. Uh, they took him off life support. And he passed away right before I went to go do the first Ironman. Yeah. And, and and it was just a heavy. It was it was a it, you know it was a heavy thing you know, for for me you know um, I I remember I did this podcast and I I just I just lost my shit like, you know I just broke down, um, and it wasn't just from that it was. You know, he had a hard life too, you know, and and he said, uh, you know, to always, he, you know, he always talked about being grateful and, and, and he did a, he did time in prison for robbing banks to pay for his cancer surgery. They, he was on the cover of the fucking newspapers and shit. Mm. And, and he said, you know, any day above ground is a good day, man. You got to have gratitude and, you know, that's... You know, gratitude forges attitude, man. You know, you got to be thankful. So many people take things for granted. I was watching, you know, this 20-something-year-old man, and he had cerebral palsy, and he was in a walker, like, you know, and it, and it, 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 it took him about 20 minutes to get down one block. Yeah. And everybody else is all in their little gadgets and walking around and not, Writing this book helped me to, it was a reminder for me about a lot of things that, that I need to be appreciative of and, and have gratitude toward and um, pay more attention and be more mindful yeah. about everything. And, and also your commitment. Mm. There's another chapter, Be All In. Yeah. And, and I say, when people tell me shit's not going the way they want in life, I always ask them how much of themselves they've invested in what they're trying to accomplish, regardless of what that may be. Building a career, bettering a relationship, getting fit, whatever. Yeah. If it's not 100%, I tell them they got no right to bitch and complain. True. So, you know, you get what you, 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 you get in return what you invest. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's the same with your spiritual practice or whatever, your sobriety. You know, um, all of that, yeah. but you know, it, it's, it's really just a lot of things that, you know, I've been taught over the years. I spent four years writing this book and had, you know, been going through a lot of shit too. Yeah. You know, my brother's addiction and almost for dying and being in a coma and just fucking, it's a lot, it's a lot, you know? Yeah. But, you know, remain humble, man, you know. That's how you do it. And take responsibility for you, for for things you've done. Yeah. You know. 100%. Well, John, you know, I, I want to thank you 
again for your time. Um, to to the listeners, I I want to let you know I've been very fortunate to read the PMA effect. Uh, I got an advanced copy and it is phenomenal. I sincerely cannot recommend it enough. I know it's available already on Amazon, um, probably pretty much anywhere books are sold. Uh, please check it out. Our friends at Equal Vision Records had a hand in putting this out. They are an incredible label. It's been around yes. for a long time. Very, very. Steve, I race Iron Man with Steve Reddy. That's uh, awesome. Kaylee Lalita's husband. He's a yeah. He's just, he's one of the best human beings I, I know on the planet, man. He's always helping people out. Yeah. And, and, and it's cool to get it on Amazon, but. We'd also like people to go to the website. And that's the, what I was going to ask you. Yeah, where can they the, find it? Uh, ThePMAEffect.com because the proceeds that I get off that, I donate. Uh, there's there's uh, a couple of you know charities that I help out that feed the homeless and stuff like that. And uh, it's getting to be the holiday season mm. and we try to be out there more, uh, you know, like this one Hare Krishna devotee who I've been helping for years just made all his prashadam means mercy. So it's food that's offered uh, to Krishna and blessed. And he just went vegan with all of his stuff. So, nice. uh, you know, I want to help him out. And if people get the book on the website, then, you know, it's good to have the book on Amazon, but they... They take they take a lot of your yeah. money. Man. Agreed. I like, always I always tell people for my books if you can go independent or directly by all means that's the best yeah. course. But yeah, Amazon it's kind of a a necessary evil to some extent. So, I mean it is what it is. But if you're uh, listeners, if you're checking this out on the Be Here Now Network website right now, all you have to do is scroll down and we will have the PMA Effect website linked. You you'll see it right there. So click that. That will bring you to John's book and uh, John. And you have, my Instagram, John Joseph Cromag on Instagram. And, yep. And uh, it, they can find. I mean, Cromags are still playing. Can they? They. Yeah, Cromags is still playing. Uh, you know. Um, I'm, I'm out there doing that and uh there's not a website for that but if you just follow me yeah. uh, uh on, on my social media john joseph on facebook or john joseph cromag uh instagram jj cromag twitter and i'm always posting little you know i try to keep keep things funny and and whatever <laughs> but it's a lot of also education on, on uh not just spirituality and and but but you know uh nutrition and all kinds of stuff so it's yeah. you know all super important yeah man well thanks man sorry we had to reschedule uh no the pleasure just happened yeah. so I, I hope uh you're happy with the result <laughs> this has been great and really the pleasure has been mine for sure This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? 
What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.